Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Prospect Podcast, and I'm Tom Clark, the editor. Welcome, everyone, to your weekly serving of politics. You know, when you look back at some of the stuff Theresa May was saying in her speeches back at the start of 2017, I, I think she literally didn't understand the difference between the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. And culture. My slight worry is that decorum and empathy and um, civility are incredibly important um, in everyday life. I like to think that also we need those spaces in art, but particularly comedy, where we can throw all those things out the window. And for our main event this week, we'll hear from Sarah Churchwell, the esteemed writer and historian whose book Behold America is reviewed in the latest edition of Prospect. That's our August issue. Sarah spoke to us about the origins of Donald Trump's so-called America first, and it goes back an awful lot further than you might think. And what's happened is that over the course of the subsequent decades, um, the idea of what the American dream could denote has narrowed ever further mm. to the point where we've kind of lost sight of the fact that equality was supposed to be part of that story. That's all to come a little later, but first I'm here with my colleague Samira Heem, our culture editor, and Alex Dean, who keeps watch over the world of politics, especially Brexit. So, Alex, to you first, there's been a changing of the guard in matters Brexit recently. Out marched David Davis and in came Dominic Raab as his replacement. He'd hardly got his feet under the desk, however, until it suddenly looked like the Prime Minister had undermined him. Yeah, so uh, it's one of those things, Tom, where you sometimes get a government paper or kind of statement and it seems kind of dry and in technical governmental language but actually there's something quite important smuggled in there and we've seen that over the past few days. Theresa May is essentially taking back control of the Brexit negotiations um, and DEXU, the Department for Exiting the European Union, is being kind of sidelined. Huge amount has been said about this and kind of what it means for the negotiations. I think what's particularly interesting is actually the fact that Dexu has, in my view, and in the view of a lot of experts I've spoken to, actually been quite sidelined from the start. Um, and indeed, perhaps that's part of the problem that led to David Davis getting so unhappy. Um, I mean, this is the point. We talk about Theresa May taking back control, but she locked all of the cabinet in a cupboard, effectively, didn't she? At Checkers and said, oh, you'll be a long, mile-long walk down the drive if you want to go and get a taxi and all of that. So it's just formalising what you think was already going on. I think so, yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not important and it certainly doesn't mean it's not a politically fraught move. Um, I think one of the reasons that the Brexit department was kind of summoned up out of thin air in the first place was as a sop to Brexiteers. There was proof set in kind of hard stone and bricks and mortar that we were leaving the European Union. Um, so any official downgrading of the status of that department is fraught with political difficulty. I mean, I can think of top of my head two other implications. For one thing, uh, Theresa May voted Remain, whereas the now two Brexit secretaries, David Davis and Dominic Raab, were on the leave side. So if she's formally in control, that's a change. The other change is if something goes wrong, 
as it did at Chequers when David Davis walked. If something goes wrong again, there's no one in the way. She's got less. Well, yeah, I mean, I think she's got less uh, less fallback. There's no one to blame it on now when it all goes wrong. She she's in control and she she's admitting to being in control. Um, the other key player in all of this is Ollie Robbins, who is is one of those kind of. You know, he was permanent sec uh, at Dexu and is one of those kind of mandarins who no one has kind of heard their name. No member of the public will have heard his name, but he's actually incredibly powerful and important. And he's now overseeing negotiations formally um, and you know informally has been for a very long time. I worked with him as a as when I was a youngster briefly. Um, I think it was on something to do with the post office, and he was he was very smooth, very on top of his brief. Um, but you didn't notice him that much. It's funny seeing this uh, technocrat guy suddenly kind of in the spotlight and a real emblem of fury for many of the Brexiteers. He certainly is that. When this Chequers deal was proposed, um, which kind of Robbins had oversight of uh, and kind of worked on with Theresa May, um, Davis had actually drafted his own version. Uh, and there were these two rival kind of competing versions of um proposals for our arrangement with the European Union and Robbins won out. I mean, Alex, are we seeing Theresa May take control in a way that she hasn't uh, previously is this part of her let me just put this proposal to you that Theresa May has been playing a blinder all this time and uh, setting up um, expectations of a hard Brexit to keep the keep the cabinet together whilst in reality I mean she voted remain to start with um, always had the plan that she was going to take control of these negotiations and ultimately some to come to some kind of soft Brexit pragmatic agreement with the EU. You know, that's a plausible interpretation. Um, that, that I don't think you think that's that plausible, <laughs> but... <laughs> slightly more optimistic than I'd be willing to go. Um, I think there's also, you know, when you look back at some of the stuff Theresa May was saying in her speeches um, back at the start of 2017, I, I think she literally didn't understand the difference between um, the European Court of Justice and um, the European Court of Human Rights. And it, so I don't have that much faith... Um, you know, that she was a mastermind all along on Brexit. Um, just tapping into something you, you said at the start, I think an interesting question, and I'm not quite certain what I myself think of this, is whether this is uh, kind of the signs of a newly confident Premier mm. taking back the reins, or the signs of an increasingly paranoid, desperate Premier shutting out all outside influence and desperately seeking to cling on to what she's got. I mean, my reading of it would be that if we think that Theresa May has got a plan to get herself out of this position, then maybe it's the kind of uh, mastermind that um, Samir is talking about. If not, you've got to be having a laugh, which is what we're going to turn to now, because Samir has been having a look at two very different Australian comics and how they've been bickering. Yeah, in recent weeks I've been... Uh watching two different, very different Australian comedians with uh, radically different approaches to comedy. Um, the first one is a woman called Hannah Gadsby. Uh, you might have seen her Netflix special called Nanette. Um, it's been an absolute phenomenon, one of the most popular um, uh, specials that they've done. Um, it, uh, she just had an interview in the New York Times as well. What's interesting about it is when you start watching it, it seems very conventional. The first half an hour is Hannah Gadsby, 40-year years old from Tasmania talking about her upbringing um, she's a lesbian and all the difficulties she had um, I think it was only in the 1990s that Tasmania allowed decriminalized homosexuality so she had a very tough upbringing but she has this sort of uh, endearing self-deprecating style of humor but then in the second half of the um, the show she turns it on his head so she she effectively stops all the jokes and goes into quite an emotional, confessional style 
um, performance, which says, actually, I don't want to joke about myself anymore. I've had too much self-dislike and self-deprecation. Uh, and what I want to do is turn my anger on um, uh, misogynistic culture, straight white men. She absolutely you know, hits all the millennial uh, talking points and sort of takes, takes a blast at it. Um, she got into uh, a bit of a spat, coincidentally, this week with Barry Humphreys, the legendary Australian comic who performs as uh, Dame Edna Everidge and Celeste Patterson and various others. And I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago doing uh, a performance of his Weimar Cabaret. Um, uh, what she was objecting to was Humphreys' comments about transgender people, which were uh, fairly uh, unpleasant. Um, was that Humphreys talking for real or Humphreys as Edna? Well, you see, the thing is, Humphreys is always sort of in character. It wasn't him as Edna, mm. but he, he always, in a way, you know, is he playing... Is he playing up the idea of the grouchy older comedian or is it is it really him? I'm not you're never quite sure. The thing about Humphrey's style of comedy though is that it's totally different from the um comedy skeptic uh, uh approach that Gadsby's taking. Because, you know, as Dame Edna, um, with this drag uh uh sort of um disguise, mm. he is incredibly waspish. Uh, takes aim and takes fire at all sorts of different targets. It's a quite a cruel, very funny, uh, very uh, but quite cruel kind of comedy. Uh, I think he sees comedy uh, as a space where you can break all the rules and you don't have to respect the decorum that you might have to observe in everyday life. Whilst Gadsby is saying, well, no, art has to be responsible. It has to be empathetic. We can't have jokes that that have uh, you know make people the butt of of humour. In fact, ultimately, the logic is we can't really have jokes at all and she follows that through quite cleverly in the performance of its of the show um by abandoning jokes completely and i think she said that this might well be her last ever stand-up bloody hell that sounds a bit of a dismal future doesn't it if we're if, if we're really the end point of um all of this um what the right would call pc means that you can't have a joke at all um i think that on its own terms the show works very well because uh, as 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 its own sort of object. My slight worry is that I think that decorum and empathy and um, civility are incredibly important um, in everyday life. I like to think that also we need those spaces in art, but particularly comedy, where we can throw all those things out the window and we can suspend those rules and we can allow ourselves to to be more relaxed, to have a laugh, to joke, to be offended, to feel slightly nervous when other people are, might be saying things which are slightly on edge, to prick the pomposities that we all um, that we all have and all the things that we're supposed to believe. I see your point, Samir. Um, do you think there's maybe an argument that comedy has always actually been at heart quite a serious vehicle um, that's used for making serious political, um, you know, state of the world points, and it's it's kind of done under the veneer of a kind of surface laugh, but actually you're channeling uh, real arguments through the sarcasm or the raised eyebrow. Yeah, no, of course. And it's all about who has the power. For Gadsby, I think it's to do with the fact that male comedians will project their anger out to satirise or to take down or to disrupt or to disturb. And she would say that female uh, comedians are more likely to turn that that eye inwards and to be more self-critical and self-deprecating. Um, so in a way, she's trying to sort of reverse that. But um, she takes the option of um, she, she doesn't want to have any victims. She doesn't want to criticise people um, unless they are people like Humphrey. So I think she called uh, a dick biscuit on Twitter. 
uh, for his comments about trans people. So maybe there is hope after all. We're just turning we're just turning the targets in a different direction. And is um, just to be clear, the the, the sense of um, Humphreys dressing up, you know, as a transvestite. Hmm. Um, as Edna Everidge, is is that part of the problem for um, for Hannah, or is it? No, I think it was just that um, he made some rude comments about what trans people do to their own bodies. Let's put it mm. let's put it that way. I think there is something about the idea of of drag and femininity. You could say that he was appropriating, in the terms we would say now, a kind of um, femininity, and in a way, sort of mocking mocking it yeah as in well a kind as, of classic uh, pantomime dame exactly fashion. pantomime dame fashion i mean in it, humphrey's talked about dame edna is essentially his mother um and so there's that dynamic going on as well but he's always got his other great characters so les patterson who's um uh, uh a drooling revolting um australian diplomat who's always touching up girls and all the rest of it um and you're meant to be you know he's meant to be an object of derision but there's also a sort of free song of pleasure seeing someone act out all the worst aspects of of older male identity i suppose brilliant um let's leave that there and now go over to our main conversation which as i say is with sarah churchwell whereas you're here this week um we couldn't record in the usual place so samir again over to you Hello, I'm sitting here in St. James's Park with Sarah Churchwell. We're doing the podcast Gonzo style <laughs> outside um, because, well, the truthful reason is that uh, Tony Blair has taken over our studio um, and he is uh, doing an event. So we are outside. Um, there may well be uh, bird noises, marching band noises <laughs> and all the rest of it. But um, Sarah, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, we're here to chat about... Um, uh, Behold America, your new book, which uh, uh, is very nicely reviewed by Dan Roberts in this uh, month's prospect. And it's really about the idea of the, the American dream and also the idea of America first. I mean, you begin the book by talking about um, Donald Trump, of course, and his, uh, I think, in his inauguration or no, when he's when he's actually uh, about to launch his campaign to become president. He says, sadly, the American dream uh, is dead. And he's tapping into an idea that's more than a, a hundred years old, that it perhaps even goes back to the founding fathers. But what did Trump really mean when mm -hmm. he talked about the American dream? Then? Well, look, I mean, I think anybody who claims to speak for Trump, um, you know, <laughs> needs to yeah. rethink yeah. Um, their position. I, I can't get inside his head and I wouldn't want to be there if I could. Yeah. Um, but what I what I take it he, he meant um, was that he was... Um, that he was speaking to a widespread notion that um, that prosperity in America is dying, that um, generational s improvement is dying, um, and that um, this idea that individual prosperity, that working hard, um, and you know just taking care of your own should be enough for you to do well in the world, that meritocracy um, was dead. What what he was also, of course, talking about though, um, was a very specific idea of the American dream that he was familiar with, um, which is the, the highly mythologized 1950s Leave it to Beaver version of um, the American dream. And we know that that's what he was referring to because in other speeches he would talk about things like how America was the greatest nation in the world in the 50s and everybody always won football games and, you know, stuff like this. Yeah. So he has this kind of high school 
you know, uh, um, childish version of the of the American dream, I think for him is very much tied up in the idea of America being the post-war power, of it being mm. this great nation, and and um, and I think that his his vanity is such that the idea that um, that he that that got bound up in the idea that America as an empire could be in decline, that somehow that also ties into um, the American dream being dead, that America is no longer this kind of glorious beacon, what Reagan uh, called the city upon the hill, misquoting John Winthrop. Um, so it's bound up in a lot of ideas, right? Yeah. Um, and what I was trying to get at was that all of those ideas, which we take to be kind of, uh, um, you know, truistic about what the American dream means, are themselves actually historically very specific and very recent. And there are older ideas about what the American dream meant as a phrase, yeah. um, not the values of America, but when people use the phrase the American dream, they meant other things. And those other things seemed to me worth recovering. And that was what I started out trying to do in the book. Yeah. I mean, he, Trump sort of sees himself as the embodiment of the American dream, doesn't he? Even though he grew up, grew up in a uh, you know, highly privileged mm. environment. He yeah. sees his story as, you know, his father was, uh, his grandfather was an immigrant, Frederick Trump and his father. Well, he keeps saying his father was an immigrant. He can't even keep his own family straight. But yes, yeah. his grandfather was an immigrant. Yeah. Um, of course, his, his uh, two of his three wives were immigrants. Um, the his, his own mother was an immigrant from Scotland, yeah. um, obviously. Um, but he doesn't see, he doesn't understand the, uh, I don't think he understands the American dream in terms of the immigrant story very clearly. Mm. Um, in, instead, I think that he is among an unfortunately ever-growing number of Americans who thinks that wealth is a sign that God loves you more, yeah. to put it bluntly, and that's how I yeah. put it in the book. is yeah. a kind of is a kind of very vulgarized version of the of the Calvinist of the Protestant work ethic that success is a sign of God's favor. And so what they've done is is you know massively oversimplified and reduced that idea down to the idea that if you're rich, it means you're better, <laughs> um, which is you know if if anything is exactly backwards. I mean, again, something else I point out in the book is that you know vast wealth has traditionally been a sign that you were doing something wrong, <laughs> not that you were doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about the idea of the American dream, but there's actually there's a sort of, uh, as it were, morally richer yeah. uh, history to it than the sort of vulgarized version that, that, that Trump that Trump. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, there certainly is. There's always a morally richer version than Trump's, you know, of <laughs> yeah, anything. It's not hard. Take, yeah. Exactly. You take any version that Trump yeah. gives you, and it will be a vulgarized version yeah. of something that is infinitely more complex. But even uh, when, when <laughs> I, you know, I was doing my sort of GCSE English in this country was studying, um, you know, uh, Arthur Miller, um, uh, View from the Bridge mm. and whatever, yeah. we would often have to do essays on, yeah, sure. you know, how criticizing the idea of the American dream. And there was this fantasy that people didn't, um, didn't quite, uh, 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 weren't ever able to, oh, there's just a flock of geese coming up there. So I'm just distracted <laughs> by that. Um, the idea of the American dream being something that needed to be criticized or yeah. critiqued or taken down. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that's, so that's part of the way that the, the idea of the phrase evolved is that what happened was in the 50s, as it became tied up with that notion of American dominance, yeah. of Cold War American prosperity, of post-war consumerism, then it started to, there a, a very strong mythological or mythologizing aspect of it to cold, which again is one that we're very familiar with. The idea that America is the, as uniquely the land of opportunity, uniquely mm. the place where you can go live out your dreams, um, uniquely the place where everybody will, you know, that it is a kind of land of milk and honey and all yeah. of those immigrant myths. And so what great writers like Miller and others were doing in the 50s was debunking that mythology as it was growing and saying, hey, you know what, America has never been the land of milk and honey. It has never yeah. been a place where everybody prospered. It has never been a place where equality was achieved or opportunity was achieved. And what's happened is that over the course of the 
subsequent decades, um, the idea of what the American dream could denote has narrowed ever further mm -hmm. to the point where we've kind of lost sight of the fact that equality was supposed to be part of that story, even for those who were critiquing it in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were pointing out that equality was supposed to be part of the story. Of course, that's what Martin Luther King says in his great I Have a Dream speech, which is riffing on the idea of the American dream. He's saying the American dream has never been available to African-Americans. And it's a, yeah. you know, a profound structural critique of America's failure to live up to the American dream. But that, as I say, that has narrowed over time to, to, so that the, the ones that you and I wrote essays about yeah. in school, the idea of the American dream was so oversimplified and reduced that it had become just kind of that you could, you know, the, the White House and the picket fence and the... Yeah. Um, and that and and that you could um, and that every generation you know would do better than the generation before it, um, which is an ideal of progress um, that is not sustainable, right? Yeah. Um, certainly not right now. You still have an echo of it nowadays. I mean, even just you know the undocumented child migrants are called dreamers, mm -hmm. aren't they? So the idea yeah. that they. Um, there is a progressive, um, there is a progressive element to this. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And so, look, the the, I mean, d uh, d when I say that, I think the critique of the American dream, as it's currently used right now, that we need to remind ourselves of, is not just the older debunking of the mythology that mm. it was ever achieved for everyone, which yeah. of course it never was. It was only available to a privileged or lucky few, um, but also that it is part of a much bigger story about American ideals. And so criticizing the American dream is not to me as an American who actually loves her country very much. Um, and that's probably why, I mean, not partly, it's entirely why I wrote this book. I was writing a book about Henry James yeah. and I was so appalled by what was happening that I, yeah. I wrote this book, which is, I have described it as a, a labor of love and a labor of rage, right? <laughs> and, and rage at what people are doing to what I still think is a beautiful ideal. Yeah. Of course, we've never achieved the ideal, we're human. Um, humans have a tendency not to achieve ideals. But what I'm trying to talk about in the book is that the ideals themselves are far richer than we have hitherto appreciated. They're even richer than this question of equality or, or access to opportunity. Yeah. And that when you look at the origins of the American dream as a phrase, when it first started to be used in a, in a recognizable way to describe a national value system, it was used in debates about inequality, as it is today, mm. about opportunity, as it is today. But it was used on the opposite side of the argument. It was used to argue for regulating capitalism in order to protect equality of opportunity for all. Yeah. And so it was. The, so now it is used, of course, as as the kind of shorthand for free market capitalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. That people on the right like to beat people on the left with, and I think it's very important that we remind ourselves or discover um, that, in fact, it emerged from a conversation on the left. It emerged as a progressive corrective mm. to unregulated capitalism, and people started saying, if you don't do something to stop monopoly and corporate capitalism the American dream of equality, justice, and democracy will be destroyed, which actually makes better sense as a meaning of the phrase American dream because it does harken back to the founding ideals of the fathers, um, uh, so-called fathers. Um, <laughs> so the so the American dream had, a, 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 as you said a minute ago, a much richer yeah. and a more complex, but a much more progressive meaning. A more collective sense of Absolutely. a collective dream rather than exactly. just an individualistic exactly. dream. And so the, the fact that the American dream was never realized for all, to my view, doesn't mean that we should have stopped talking about it or dreaming it. It's just a way of articulating an ideal. Yeah. And then you continue to work toward that ideal. Yeah. And that ideal was not individual wealth. <laughs> that ideal was precisely how to 
stop the the consolidation of individual wealth in ways that corrupted the government and protect and uh, rather prohibited blocked individuals from having their own access to opportunity and um, and prosperity. And so you know those echoes should sound pretty familiar right now. I mean, a hundred years ago they were warning against exactly where we have found ourselves and using the American dream to do so, but in a hundred and eighty degree different way than with the way we use it today. So now we're, uh, we've left our bench and we're just having a wander around the park. The other idea that you um, explore in the book is America first, which is a slogan that uh, Trump uh, used during his election, but he resurrected uh, from the past again, and you investigate that. I mean, when we think about that, certainly I think about sort of Philip Roth, Plot Against America, mm. and Lindbergh in the 1940s, um, and, it, and it being to do with isolationism. Is that is that true, or is, or is it, is, again, has it got a sort of deeper history? Yeah, it's it. got a much deeper history. So that's, that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. So that idea of uh, America first and isolationism in the run-up to the Second World War, as espoused by Charles Lindbergh in the so-called America First Committee, um, is now usually referred to as the origin of the slogan America First, and that's just wrong. Um, in fact, it was the end of the slogan America First until Trump revived it. And America First was an incredibly dominant part of the American political landscape particularly in the late teens uh, and the 1920s. In fact, it emerged not over a conversation about whether America should enter the Second World War, but about whether it should enter the First World War. Right. And it emerged from uh, President Wilson um, in 1916, who used it, sorry, 1915 rather, who used it um, as a way to articulate American neutrality as opposed to isolationism. Now, that may sound like a semantic distinction mm. without a difference, um, but it's not a euphemism. There's a real difference between neutrality and isolationism, although neutrality could incorporate isolationism, of course. Um, but the reasons for American neutrality in the run-up to the First World War were complex, and they had to do with immigration. So if you think about it on, on the most basic level, um, <clears throat> the war starts in 1914. In 1915, America is still neutral, and Wilson is talking about the reasons for that neutrality. And part of the problem was that you have very recent immigrants in the United States at this time, uh, some from Germany, some from Italy, some from Ireland, and they, are, and they are a very large part of the recent immigrant community. And you would be entering them on opposite sides of the war right. and asking them to fight their own relatives. Um, and to go to war against the country they've just emigrated from. In the case of Ireland, of course, that became even more complicated in 1916 with the Easter Rising. The idea that the Irish, that recent Irish immigrants to the United States, who had, for the most part, certainly from their point of view, had fled Ireland um, due to the conditions created by British rule, the idea that they would come to fight on behalf of the British Empire was absolutely anathema. And that that feeling of outrage only intensified after the Easter Rising. So Wilson had a very delicate balance to try to strike among different allegiances that were very real. And so neutrality was not an unreasonable position for a country that, of course, we'd been fighting Britain ourselves until yeah. quite recently at that point. And it, for many people at the time, the conflict, the, at least at the beginning, the conflict was viewed as a contest between two equally sympathetic imperialist ventures. I'm sorry, unsympathetic imperialist right, ventures. Right, yeah. You basically have two bad empires warring it out. And so the view of a lot of Americans were, of course, America was not yet an empire and didn't see itself as one at that point. Um, Americans kind of thought, well, 
let these two nasty, you know, uh, empires fight it out in Europe. And so the 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 response of an of isolationism at that moment had a lot more had the possibility to be considerably more nuanced and complex um, so than it's it, often represented. So was it more about the idea of sort of part of the project of creating an American identity and about who your loyalties should be and it be to and it should be well you know America first or you know 100% American uh, is another slogan that you yeah well that's a more complicated yeah. one but so yeah so what they were what they were yeah part of what Wilson was trying to say I mean he was being mendacious right he was trying to have it both ways but he was saying that America America first didn't mean America first in a selfish spirit, but it meant America first to lead, America right. first to pick up the pieces in Europe, America first to stay friends with all. Yeah. Um, and so he was trying to use it that way, but he was also, it's very much in a conversation about assimilationism and immigration. And what he was saying was that he wanted immigrant communities, instead of thinking about loyalty to Germany or Italy or Ireland, to think about loyalty to America first. Yeah. That, again, may have sounded okay, but it rapidly got taken up in the name of xenophobia, as we might predict. So, you know, he's trying to do something very nuanced and, and, um, and as I say, you know, pretty much mendacious. He was prevaricating, really. Yeah. Um, but, the, but then what it got, it got taken up in the um, national cultural discourse as a, a statement for pure selfish isolationism, screw the rest of the world, America first, their problems are their problems, it has nothing to do with us. And then the, the argument, the debate arose um, in the U.S. at that time in, in now recognizable ways where you have people on the progressive left saying we're part of a global order. You can't extricate yourself from the world. It's all well and good to say America first, but what happens in the world affects what happens in America and vice versa. And then you have people on the right saying in the name of, of pure nationalism and what rapidly became jingoism. Um, America first, this is the only nation that matters. And that gets tangled up very quickly with xenophobic and anti-immigrant sentiments at the time. And so it, what I'm showing in the book is that America first was a xenophobic, nativist, anti-immigration and indeed racist and fascist slogan yeah. much, much earlier than anybody thinks it was. And all of that evolved um, in other ways. We seem to have a marching band <laughs> moving. Is it moving, is it moving toward us? I'm not sure. I think, it is. I think it's just behind those trees. We've just seen Trump uh, in Helsinki talking to uh, to Putin, and the, and the idea that you know, his slogan was "America first, but a lot of people were saying, that, you know, it's more sort of it Russia, like first, Russia first, or yeah, like Putin first. So it seems there's a peculiar uh, allegiance and alliances that he's breaking um, uh, and remaking. I mean, again, ascribing logic to anything he does is um, <laughs> Quite. is, is well, um, well, the, the logic. I just there is always a logic to what he does. It's very, very simple, and it's self-interest. So, um, so I, you know, I think I think we can see why he would put Russia first. Um, I don't mean national self-interest. I mean Trump's individual yeah, self-interest. Yeah. Um, so, but he's also purely cynical, right? He'll say anything to curry favor. We've seen that over and over and over again. So it's not not ascribing a logic to it. It's it's expecting him to be a man of his word. Yeah, is the, yeah. is the part that is um, that is becoming so problematic for people that some people can't seem to accept that he's just a liar, um, and we have to treat him as such. Um, but so absolutely, look the the the. The willingness of Trump to um, curry favor with Russia and, and, and indeed of, of, the, of the Republican right in the United States um, to tolerate this has puzzled a lot of people. And I think that there are two things that people need to bear in mind. One is, one is more often remarked on than the other. 
The one that's often remarked on is that Trump likes a strong man, and so do authoritarians in general, and the GOP is increase, increasingly authoritarian um, in its, you know, in its value system. It has been over the last 20 years or so developing in that way. So there is a sympathy there for authoritarian strongmen posing of the kind that John Bolton likes. They think this is how you, you know, exert influence in the world, and anything else is weak and liberal and, you know, snowflakey and what have you. Um, so there's that. But the other thing that I think gets too often lost, which is incredibly important to this, and it goes back to the point about what America first has always meant. Um, the sympathy they feel for Russia is its white ethno-nationalism. That's what they like about Russia. They like that it is one of the regimes that is, the, is reactionary in its racial politics. It is overtly racist. They like that it is reactionary in its social politics. It is overtly homophobic, for example. Um, these are uh, attitudes that the American right at the moment, I'm sorry to say some people on the American right, but the ones currently driving the GOP platform and supporting, I should say, shoring up Trump, are extremely sympathetic with. And as I say, America first is, has for 100 years been a slogan that denoted precisely those xenophobic, racist, anti-immigrant, authoritarian sentiments. For, a, for certainly for a strong segments of the American right. And one of the things that I show in the book is that th that meaning of that slogan, its emergence as a dog whistle, um, is, is, um, is traceable in the history. It, it, it stayed alive. It stayed alive in underground movements. When the KKK was disbanded, the KK, I haven't said this yet, but the KKK used America First as its slogan through the 1920s. And they... They even tried to copyright it at one point. They really strongly identified with the slogan "American First, America First," and you mentioned "100 percent American," yeah. um, which is uh, the other one that they like to use, which is a deeply coded statement that I probably can't decode <laughs> um, very quickly, but it has very strong um, racial uh, implications in the United States. And so the America First, um, as I say, was, was strongly associated with the Renaissance clan in the, in the 1920s. And then they disbanded um, in the 40s. And the, but the, but the, you know, there were um, underground factions that kept some of these ideas alive. And, and there's lots of historical traces that show that, say, in the 60s, during the civil rights movement, when the KKK was reforming, they were reforming around banners like America First. So they would print flyers and handbills and say, you know, come to an America First rally, we're going to get the KKK off the ground again. So even though it's not part of the national conversation anymore by the 60s, it was still very much kept alive in these underground conversations. And it's very clear that what's happened is that Trump has validated and legitimated those. I mean, we've all seen it. It's just that people, pe people recognize that he has validated and legitimated right-wing hate and race-based hate and xenophobic hate. Um, people are, are less aware, I think, because they aren't aware of the history, that America First is very explicitly a dog whistle for those ideas. And it, and it stayed alive. David Duke, who is the head of the KKK in the US today, when he endorsed Trump, said Trump stands for what I've always stood for. He stands for America First. I mean, they know what this yeah. phrase means. Sarah, what does it mean to you being an American living in Britain now, looking over the pond and seeing what's going on there? I mean, how does how does it feel um, uh, to be so far away from it? But of course, you know, with communications and media, it's, it seems very close as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
one's feelings can can best be described as mixed in such circumstances, <laughs> I think. Um, look, I mean, my feelings are uh, like so many Americans and people who love America watching what's happening around the world, a mix of rage, disbelief, despair, horror, hope, um, you know, prayer, secular prayer, um, you know, saying somewhere we have to find the wherewithal to fight this down and reassert um, reassert values of tolerance, equality, justice, <laughs> democracy, the rule of law, little things like that. So, um, so of course, I'm, I'm absolutely um, horrified and enraged. Um, the question of how it feels to watch it from a distance, it sort of evens out. I mean, on the one hand, of course, it's frustrating. On the other hand, it's a relief. Of course, it's a relief. And I've had, I've had American friends visiting here um, over the last months who have said, you know, it's a, it's a relief to be here, just not to be constantly inundated with him. And, and we may feel in Britain that we're inundated with yeah, Trump to a yeah. degree that we wouldn't <laughs> like, but it's nothing like what's happening at home. Um, he is dominating the, the airwaves. He is dominating the media conversation. That is clearly what he is good at and what, um, in my view, a great part of his success um, comes down to. So, yeah, it is. I mean, I, because I find it torture to listen to the guy. I mean, I can't. I mean, my husband and I have regular fights about this because he wants to have the news on like a perfectly sensible person. And I make him turn it off when Trump comes on um, because I, I read about him to stay informed. But I cannot listen to him. I mean, there has been a reaction also in America. And we do see, I mean, not only, you know, your book is one of many that is trying to sort of um, uh, reassert the idea, you know, there's facts. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is remarkable truth. idea. Um, there are things that, um, you know, there are values of decency and, and all the rest of it. I mean, uh, you know, America is going to come back from this, isn't it? I think so. Of course I think so. Look, I'm American, so optimism is bred into our bones um, for good reason. It's how we've managed to hold it together. I also think we have to, we do have to take a long view. This is an historical book, and we can take a longer view than my book does, which only starts a century ago. I mean, people have said, oh, there have never been darker days in America. Well, we did have a civil war mm -hmm. um, in which hundreds of thousands of Americans died. We did have institutional slavery in which huge atrocities took place. Um, and we have managed somehow to right ourselves a bit and go wobbling forward. Um, and it is, you know, Obama said to told David Remnick right after the election, he observed that, you know, history doesn't move in a straight line, it moves in a zigzag. And this is a hard zag, but that, but that doesn't mean it's a permanent zag. It doesn't mean we're never going to be able to right ourselves again. And I take a lot of hope from the, um, the I mean, everybody's upset about polls now. Everybody's suspicious. <laughs> and, um, but there, there, is, there is a lot of indication that, um, that people are, are very angry about this and that it, you know, anger is energizing, it's motivating and that it is motivating people to get out there and to fight for it, to fight for their vote, to exercise their franchise, to recognize that this is the only way in hell that we have of not just removing Trump, but his corrupt supporters. This, the, this, as I say, this kind of corrupt base of the GOP that's willing to hold him up no matter what he says or does, no matter what he says or does. And, and the level of, of, of dishonor and, um, and, and as I say, of, of corruption and, and uh, it, it, it just beggars belief. Thank you, Sarah. That was my colleague Samir Rahim talking to Sarah Churchwell. And you can read the review of her book, Behold America, in our current issue of Prospect. That's the August one, which is available in all good shops of any type right now. You can't miss it. The cover's got a big union flag on it with the question... What starts if Brexit stops? And the package there includes uh, thoughts from a wide range of experts who actually come from different sides. And they include Wolfgang Munchau, Caroline Lucas of the Greens and Will Hutton and many more besides. Buy a copy and find out what the thinkers are thinking. 
Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes, and you can read the review of Sarah's book and all our coverage of Trump, Brexit and more on our website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And while you're there, I'm sure you'll notice the subscription rates are very reasonable indeed. Be sure to tune in next week for the Prospect Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.